Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm here with, drumroll, your former host, Nick Bilton, the OG. The OG. That's right, the OG. Hiver. How's it going? Great. I love summer. It's my favorite season, so I'm happy to be in it. Oh, I hate summer. <laughs> well, you're in LA, so it's like perpetual summer, and so you don't care, really. I mean, yeah, it's like you're from the, England, though. I'm from England. That's correct. And I love the rain and the cold. I was thinking about this morning. I woke up this morning. At my kid woke me up at 6.30, and it was like, I looked at my watch, and I was like, oh my God, it's already 80-something degrees out, and... I was like, I miss England. I should go back to England. But, you know, then I wouldn't be able to do podcasts and fun stuff like that. Well, you would do it, but just with an accent. (laughs) Go to pub for a pint. Now, I didn't know you had origins from England until this morning when I looked on your Wikipedia page. I love that that is the re- still the reference point to, uh, to whom someone is uh, by the Wikipedia page. Yeah, I was born in England, up north in Yorkshire, where they talk like that, and ended up in, um, somehow ended up in L.A. with a, a few stops in Miami and New York and Georgia and Paris and San Francisco and so on and so forth. So I like that. Um, just to let our listeners know, Emily Jane Fox. Where's Emily Jane Fox? They're wondering right off the bat. And just to let you know, we're at a bit of a cliffhanger here because she may be having a baby this week. She might not. She might have it next week. We can't ultimately control it, but we wait to hear when she will have children speaking in the background of the podcast. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, uh, it's very exciting. Well, I, I, you know, I do want to say I get a little credit for this one because I introduced Emily to Lee and I sent a text message, which I could probably, you know, say was clairvoyant, but it was just really honest to me trying to be funny, where I introduced them over text pre-COVID and I essentially said... Uh, that uh, if you guys go out, I'm sure you'll have a great time. If you have nothing to talk about, you can talk about me. And uh, please, when you get married and have your first child, call it Nick. And here we are. They're not going to call their first child Nick, but I predicted everything Well, it's else. a girl, maybe. So uh, Nicola? You know, that might not work. Okay, okay. Come on, that could work. <laughs> I want listeners to know, and this is important, that Nick Bilton is he's drinking some, something out of a very dainty British teacup. I am. I, this, these are my mom's teacups. She passed away six years ago, but I still use them all the time. And I drink uh, my coffee out of them because they're like the perfect size. They're about five, yeah, like five that. ounces. Very British. So you started your career, and we're going to do a little career review with Nick. For those who oh. may just be familiar with the with the Joe and Emily version, we're going to go to the OG, get a little biographical uh, insights. But at some point, you went to. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That's right, where the the shooting happened. I 
I left England, ended up in Florida, in Miami, Florida, which was the the biggest culture shock on the planet. Um, It was, uh, I remember I got off the plane. I was this 12-year-old British kid who had, I went to a school called Barnard Castle, which was literally a castle in the north of England. And I wore, you know, there were houses just like Gryffindor and all those things. And I was in Raleigh House. And I wore black socks and big, goofy goggle glasses. And I'll send you a picture. I I literally looked like (laughs) Harry Potter. And I get off the plane in Miami. And the first place we go to eat is Fuddruckers. And I am standing in the foyer of Fuddruckers. And there's all these pictures of like the local football team and baseball team and the cheerleaders. Stuff I had never seen before in my life. And I had uh, my very first panic attack. Uh, It was, you know. Wow. And it was just all downhill from there. And so uh, yeah. I, was, I was in Florida for six years, hated it with a passion, went to school at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and then ended up writing about it for Vanity Fair, actually, after the, after the shooting happened there. Was I was a- going to mention that. If you want to go look that up on VanityFair.com, it's a worthwhile essay. Um, I only recently learned who Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Am I getting the names in the right yeah, order? Yeah, you're getting it right. You're, you're in the right order, yeah. Uh, that she was a pioneering environmentalist in Florida mm-hmm. and, had, you know, the, de- the great defender of the wetlands down there. Of the Everglades. Well, it's interesting because the, the school, funnily enough, it was built on the wetlands partially, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I remember there being like some structural issues uh, that they mm-hmm. had to kind of address later, which is... Um, what happened with the Miami condo collapse, which is a story that I have been obsessed with. Uh, yeah. What a harrowing, that video I can't get out of my head. It's just yeah, insane. It's um, yeah. But yeah, there's, there's, it's, um, Florida's a weird place. It, it's like a, it's honestly like I've, I've lived all over the world and I've traveled all over the world. And I think that Florida is one of the weirdest places I've ever lived and been. And not, and it's not, not in like a, like Venice, you know, Italy is like a beautiful, amazing place. And like Switzerland is just gorgeous and, and England is like historic and this, and Florida is just this, it's like, it's undescribable almost just how odd it is as a piece of land. I don't know. It's very strange. Well, it's, it's so American in certain ways because it's one of the youngest you know, pieces of land in the country. It's like basically built on like a coral reef, right? I mean, and it, it was only really livable and inhabitable by entrepreneurial real estate, you know, guy, Henry Flagler, I think was his name, who built the railroad down through it so that they could build hotels and start having like fancy parties and fancy people. Now, but were the, were, were the hotel, I, I, I know a little bit of the history here, but you clearly know more than me. Were the, was, was it originally, it was the St. Petersburg side and the Gulf that was the, where people. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But and it was the Palm since, Beach side that t- required a little more work. Yes. And clearly it's not a place I would want to live. Right. It's, mm. um, it's not for, it's not for everybody. But I remember like, um, I remember being down there during uh, Hurricane Andrew and, you know, living, growing up. In, with hurricanes in my teenage years, and I don't know, it's just such an odd, odd place to to live. But hey, more power yeah. to the people that live there, right? I have a funny story for a funny Florida story for you. So Tell. we moved to uh, Florida. My dad and I, my mom and my sister, stay in England, and 
my dad becomes a citizen and has a business here and so on. And um, he never voted, even though he was a U.S. citizen. He was like, I, I don't, you know, it's nonsense. My vote doesn't count, he'd always say. And I'd be like, yes, it does. And he'd say, no, it doesn't. So cut to 2000 and he doesn't vote. And he is in the district that that decides George Bush won by 527 votes. And, wow. Uh, and ever since then, he's voted every single year. So, yeah, um, I imagine so. Yeah, yeah, that was what an introduction to the whole thing. Kind of uh-huh. like the big outlier is his is his uh, introduction to the whole thing. It's like that movie. Is that the movie where the there's a there's a movie where there's like one guy who doesn't vote and he has to decide uh, who becomes the next president or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's that I like my to, dad. Uh, this is an adjacent Florida story. That's in the news. I just wanted to ask you what you thought about it, which is um, these Parkland parents who tricked the ex-NRA guy into giving a commencement speech. Did you see this whole story? No. Tell me about this. Okay. This is – it's pretty mind-blowing. So these two Parkland parents sort of um, invited this ex-NRA president, David Keene, to give a commencement speech in Las Vegas – to the James Madison Academy 2021 graduating class. And, uh, but it was completely fake. And what they did was they said, well, we need you to give the speech, uh, do a test run in it, to the empty stadium, right? And so they set up the stadium with as many chairs as kids who have been shot in, in uh, school shootings. Wow. So um, and then they made a video out of it and they have him giving this speech about the Second Amendment and they're panning back slowly but surely to see the entire stadium full of empty chairs. And it is chilling. That's chilling. Incredible. Yeah. And I was uh, so when did they tell him? I think, you know, they put out the video and that's when they think they released the video last Wednesday. So it was a couple who had lost a child, Manuel and Patricia Oliver. Their son, Joaquin, 17, was killed in your uh, former high school. So then they edited, and this is an interesting part, and people will go out and look for this later. You should go Google it and find it. Uh, And I've posted it on Twitter. But um, they edited in to the audio phone calls of parents calling to find out where their children are or vice versa, kids inside the high school calling out. And uh, it's trigger warning. (laughs) This stuff is, it's so um, horrifying, Uh, but it was pretty intense kind of like quote unquote pranked play. Um, What's amazing is, is that, you know, I've done a lot of, I've done some reporting and writing on the NRA and whatnot, especially after the the school shooting in uh, in Parkland and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And what's just astounding is that it is such a poorly run institution with, quite frankly, people that are not that smart, you know, um, uh, who, uh, you know, um, so many people on the upper echelon of the company have been bankrupted or sued before joining and so on and so forth. And really is is an institution that does not have as much power. It just pretended it did. And it was, um, and by pretending it did, it was able to be perceived as having it and has, you know, decided the laws of the land for the last 30 years. And David Keene, 
you know, uh, was was at the top of it, you know, and and and, and yeah. it's just, I mean, honestly, I think there are certain people who regret what they've done there, and there are certain people who don't, and I think that there are certain people who are just kind of honestly a little sociopathic with the fact that they can't realize the impact that they've had, and and it's not to say that guns, all gun, I mean, going back to England, I grew up in England, there's no guns in England, you know, more people. Yeah. More people will die in America during us recording this podcast from guns than will die in the entire 2021 in England from guns. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. uh, it's just, it, it's such a, it go, you know, it's such an odd argument to make that it's, it's all or nothing. Uh, but I do think we're getting to a point societally where that's about to start changing. Absolutely. Um, it is so, it's cultural. It's like a, and, and, you know, this is what, why you're, a very successful journalist, and this is the thing about certain kinds of journalists, but like you're something of an outsider to U.S. culture to some degree. I mean, you have a little bit of like just enough to make you observant <laughs> about uh, our world versus the way it necessarily is elsewhere. But it's it, it America is like it's such a strange, you know, I, I was talking to two friends this weekend who were in Italy uh, on a, a work related trip and and I I was like, would you rather be there or here? You know, and, you know, they said that there's parts of there that are just amazing and there's parts of here that are amazing and both have have downsides. And I think really the reality is America is like a baby. It's like a it's a teenage country that is still figuring its shit out. And, uh, you know, growing up in England, like you felt the history. Look, England has its problems. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if if you're part of the... You know, we have free healthcare over there, but it takes three weeks to get a doctor's appointment. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, uh, good luck if you want to get some braces for your teeth. Like, uh, you know, but it's but it's a and it's a country that I think takes taking care of its own to an extreme. Um, but at the same time, America's this this is like it's it, this it's all independence and as big as you can get, and this, that, and the other, and and like, well, if you're homeless, it's your fault. You know, it's like. I, I don't know. I think that there's upsides to both sides. If it, you know, if someone was telling me they had this really good point about the about about COVID, where they were talking about how, you know, COVID was able to spread in America quicker than any country in the world because of our obsession with freedom. You can't tell me to put a mask on or to stay home and this, that, and the other. But at the same time, America was able to create a uh, a vaccine for this virus quicker than anyone in the world because we have this freedom to be entrepreneurial and to right. uh, and so there's an upside and a downside to it. And I think that, um, yeah. but it, it's it, as someone who came from a country where you you could, I mean, the, I literally went to school in a castle, <laughs> like on a hill, yeah. like you know. Um, and you can feel the history. Uh, um, it's it's very odd to uh, to live here and to see the way this country works and how far it has to go. A country liberated from a uh, sense of history, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, that's the um, why we're in uh, constant political contortions, trying to mitigate and understand that. So this is the part in the podcast where people will start going on Twitter and saying. Screw you, Nick Bilton. You're a fucking idiot. So, yeah. you know, but that's okay. Well, here, here it comes. Ed. We'll, we'll time it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I have really reduced my social media use because of just idiots attacking you constantly. And then you spend half your time just blocking people and your hand gets tired and you're in a bad mood and you're like, why am I doing this? You know, but um, technology and the technological vision of what the future may hold for us is sort of your your beat and has been your beat. I noticed um, and what we're here today ostensibly to talk about is uh, cryptocurrency, which we talked about last week as a thing that I've never been able to wrap my head around. I know it makes it can be explained in a kind of um, well, it's this, it's this, it's like a, an agreed upon currency that exists in the computer space somewhere, but there's no centrality to it, right? So let me just ask you: It seems to have been Bitcoin came after the 2008 crash, essentially, and that's when it became popular. And my first question for you is like, was it invented and did it take off because of people's distrust of banks and, and that came out of the kind of like post 2008 crash paranoia that started to evolve around Goldman Sachs and all these different banks? Was that the kind of initial genesis of it? Yes and no. And I think that the reality is if you went back in time and you go and you find the people or persons who, um, you know, uh, whether it is a singular or, or, you know, some people believe there's a group of three or four people that started Bitcoin. But if you go, let's just say, let's just say the, the person who started, let's just for, the, for argument's sake for this conversation. Right. You go back and you find the person who started it and you say, hey, in 2020, uh, at the height of the, the pandemic, where there'll be a pandemic, we'll all be inside. Um, the Bitcoin's market cap will be around a trillion dollars. A single Bitcoin will cost $63,000. That person would have been like, yeah, right, bullshit. <laughs> I think right. that the, you know, the original white paper written by Satoshi Nakamura, who is, who is the, the pseudonym of the creator of Bitcoin, uh, talks about, a de- you know, yes, the, the, the idea is to, have a decentralized money where the bank doesn't exist or need to exist, where every single person that holds money is the bank and so on. And so let me let me explain this in a kind of more of a lay terms. So right now you get your paycheck and let's just say it's $100 a week and you go and you put that, that $100 into a bank and the bank says, oh, we know from, from past data that we've, you know, that Joe only pulls out $10 and he leaves the rest in there for a month. And so we can go take that other 90 bucks and we could go and invest it in the market and we can make Joe's $90 into 120 bucks. Uh, we can charge someone who only makes $10 a week a fee 
for, you know, which is a dollar to, to put their money in our bank, because of course, the richer you are, the less you pay for your bank fees and so on. Uh, we can charge them late fees. We can charge them credit fees. We can do all these things. And, and, and if we fuck it all up, the government will bail us out and give us trillions of dollars and we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people uh, have seen that for a long time and, and thought it is a pretty much a disgusting kind of business model uh, and an unfair business model. And, and and then there's also the fees that come along between banks. So if you're at Chase and I'm at, at, at you know, some British bank and you want to send me a dollar, it's going to cost us $1.60 to do it. So there's all these things that were happening and they all kind of converged to lead to this idea of what essentially was Bitcoin. So Satoshi Nakamura puts out this white paper and he says, hey, if you have one Bitcoin, you have the wallet, which essentially holds your Bitcoin. You have to use our wallet. Uh, It's free. Uh, And at the same time, there's a ledger in there, almost like a, a bank statement that has every single Bitcoin transaction. So you're the bank and and so you don't have to pay the fees. All you're doing is you just have the Bitcoin. Um, If you want to send the Bitcoin, you don't have to pay anything. It's free uh, unless you go through a third party. And so the idea of it is is brilliant, honestly. And when it first came about, it was mostly just a few people in forums that were interested in cryptocurrencies. There's cryptocurrency ideas that have gone back for for decades. but, the, you know, this was like really the first one that ever took off. And then there were gamers who were, were looking at it. And, um, and I don't think it really, you know, people knew about it. And they, you know, it's funny. I, I was this summer, I went and looked last summer. I, I was curious. I went and looked through my Gmail for the first reference of a of Bitcoin. And it was someone had emailed me in 2010 uh, and said, can you put me in touch with the Bitcoin guys? Uh, to which I was like, I don't know who they are. Um, but but back then it was just like, it was just this idea. And I think today what's happened is you've started to finally see that the idea play out in the way that you wanted it to. And, um, oh, the way that the founders of this wanted it to and the people that backed it. The question is, what does it look like 10 years from now? And that is that, and I don't care who you talk to, no one on the planet knows the answer to that. Is it going to be Bitcoin that's the only cryptocurrency we use? Is it, is it going to be Ethereum? Is it going to be Monero? Is it like all these different coins that have since come and about? And are these like subspecies of the Bitcoin operating on alternative ledgers? Yeah. So um, some of them operate on the Bitcoin ledger and they're, and some of them are, like you said, subspecies are like different currencies and so on. They all have a different reason and a rhyme and a purpose. Some of them are completely bullshit, uh, completely just scams. And we can get into that in a minute. They're called shit coins. Uh, um, <laughs> we can talk about shit coins in a minute. Um, some of them are, are low energy. Um, uh, Chia, for example, uh, one of the problems that happened with Bitcoin, that I don't think anyone really foresaw um, or if they, and if they did, they, they're, they're assholes because they should have had the responsibility to understand what would have happened. But, you know, the, the climate costs of Bitcoin, because the cost to mine for a Bitcoin is just astronomical in the amount of electricity that's used and how bad it is for climate. Uh, so like along came Chia coin and Chia coin only mines by using the leftover hard drive space on your computer. So it's not really actually using that much energy. There's a coin called Ethereum, which is like the second biggest coin there is. And 
that is the backbone of what NFTs, those those ridiculous art right. things that everyone's been buying and selling throughout the pandemic, they are they mostly are sold. NFT operates on the Ethereum platform, and so you know there's there's all these different kinds, and there's there's Monero, and like Monero is. It's completely 1,000% anonymous. Bitcoin is not anonymous. Everyone calls it digital cash, but you can, if the FBI wants to find out which wallet purchased this and sold it to that, they could figure it out. With Monero, they can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they all have a different purpose. More, it's like a black market almost still. I mean, well, that was the, that was the beginning. So the, in the early days of Bitcoin, everyone was going on the dark web and they were going to the Silk Road and other websites and they were buying and selling drugs and guns and all this other stuff. And they were using Bitcoin to buy because it was untraceable, quote unquote. Um, the dark web's 95% of the stuff on there is still is still sold th- with Bitcoin and other currencies. But, you know, they, they all have their different rhymes and reasons and why they're here. And I, I think what's been so fascinating is that they're not cash, and they're not collectibles like art or old cars, and they're not necessarily, you know, commodities. And they're not—it's like they—they're everything, uh, and they—they're still yet to be defined. Um, and it's almost like people have been waiting for you to be able to purchase more things with cryptocurrency, or with Bitcoin and Ethereum, and that—that's when they think it'll be, you know, it, it will settle down and stop being so so volatile, and it's. In the the pricing and so on, but I don't. I think that it's the wrong way to look at it. I think if you have to look at this as an entirely new thing, that it's like almost like a new species of animal we discovered. Um, well, that's I, that's why I'm always I'm a little confused by it on cer- about certain things, and I want to hit hit you with some rapid fire questions. Let's do that it. May not have I'm rapid ready. fire answers, but mining. How do you mine for more coins? What does that even mean? I mean, you're, I I don't get it. So the way mining works is there's not an infinite number of Bitcoins. There's only 21 million or so Bitcoins that are available. And the way that the system works is that in the very beginning, um, it's a mathematical equation. And at the very beginning, a new Bitcoin was created and released into the internet, if you will, every, I don't know, let's just make it up, every half a second, right? Or every millionth of a second or whatever. And then as more and more came out, it eventually became every second, then every two seconds, then every four seconds, then every eight seconds, and so on. And now we're at a point where, I, let's just, I'm just making this up, but it's every day. Let's just say there's, it's not that, but I'm just saying this for, right. for, the, for the illustration. There's some rate. Yeah, yeah there's a rate. And I, and I have to correct myself because don't worry, Twitter will, you know, when this comes out. But They're coming after you. They're coming after me. I'm anyway. setting you up. It's all right. Yeah. I don't check it anymore, so they can say whatever the fuck they want. But um, so... The idea is that when you are getting – when a Bitcoin was being created every every half a second, um, it was really easy to mine for them. And the way you mine is you, you run essentially an algorithm on your computer that is searching for the Bitcoin and – uh, and based on the amount of time you put in, it's based on if you, if you, how much you get and, and so on and so forth. So back then, if you wanted to – the cost of the electricity and the cost of um, your time would be worth about a penny. You know, a little while later, it was worth about a dollar. We're now at the point where the cost of mining for a Bitcoin and the amount of time it takes in the hardware is equal to around – $30,000 or $60,000 or whatever. So the number and the value is not arbitrary. 
um, of, of what a Bitcoin costs, um, it actually- It's hard drive does, costs. It's like hard drive and electricity. It's hard drive and electricity. So when, so when what's happened over the, over the last couple of weeks is, you know, a couple of months is that, you know, Bitcoin hit a high of being worth $64,000 or so, and now fell just last week to under $30,000. It's now back up to around 34000 When we're done with this podcast, it could be anything. It just is so volatile. You have no idea. It falls honestly. It falls and, and then uh, goes back up, you know, five to 10% at any given time. Right. Uh, and, and so, the cost of mining is now more expensive than a Bitcoin. And so the, the question is, is, will the miners be willing to continue to invest their time and energy to get less money than they're putting in? Or will the, will the value go back up? And that's what the hope is. But where everything gets very confusing is there are certain people, they call them Bitcoin whales. Um, and whales are people who have, you know, billions of dollars in Bitcoin or hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoin. And so the problem with the value of Bitcoin um, uh, is that it, in some respects, is kind of a bit of a of an MLM. It's like a pyramid scheme in some respects, right? Because... Well, I, okay. I'm so glad you said that because that's what always blows my mind about the cryptocurrency when I read about it, is that it kind of, um, it's the honesty about it about getting away from the centralized banks is it's an acknowledgement that the only way these things have value is everybody agrees on it, right? And the more people who agree that it has value, the more it has value, right? And isn't that the almost the definition of a Ponzi scheme at some point? I mean, you're basically like building out of nothing, you know, there's no bottom. Well, yes, but look, we all agree that this piece of paper that you put in your pocket that has a one or a exactly. five or a 20 has yes. value, right? So sure. it's no yeah. different to that, right, in some respects. But I think that where, where, the, where I think the math gets screwed up is that there are a lot of people who bought 10,000 Bitcoin in 2011 for five bucks or whatever the number was, Right. Today, they could sell those Bitcoin for a billion dollars, right? One of them could because Bitcoin today is worth, let's just say, 35 grand or whatever. But it doesn't mean that it's like a that would be like a run on the banks and we would find ourselves back in the same right. situation as we. Uh, so so it doesn't. The, I think the problem with it is that it doesn't take into account that problem um, and there are people working on on that, um, and they're working on it with other coins and the value and the price and this, that, and the other. And but it is at risk of of the same thing that happened in two thousand eight as anything. And it's just it just means that there's right. not a bank that gets to make all the money. It means that some asshole right. who bought ten thousand for five bucks could could do it. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> And so when you have like shit coins, for instance, yes. these are like uh, currencies, cryptocurrencies that the system is inelegant and not agreed upon. And it's basically failing to become a proper pyramid scheme. No, it what. So what happens with shit coins? So there's about I believe there's about 10,000 coins out there. Um, some of them have died. Some wow. of them are doing really well. Yeah. Some of them are not. Every day there's dozens that are released, sometimes a hundred, you know, sometimes one. Um uh, and they're all over the country. And like, it, it's actually, it's, it's a truly fascinating thing to watch. So what happens is you get some like kid in Canada who goes in his parents' garage, creates a new coin and does like a live stream about the, about it. And then that coin could become worth, the, the, the market cap of that coin could be worth 50 bucks if, people, if only one person buys in or it could be worth 50 million, you know, if enough people buy in. But what they do with these shit coins is some of them have actual real potential, right, of being an actual coin that has a purpose. Some of them are just a joke. A lot of them are just a joke. Um, there's a whole genre of animal coins. They call them the, the, the zoo cryptocurrency, like uh, like Dogecoin, for example, the famous one that Elon Musk got behind um there's like ship coin which is shibu inu the dogs there's like a dog coin and a cat coin and there's there's all the lizard coins there's all these different things oh my god there's some of them are jokes and people invest in them because they're funny and 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 they become real businesses like dogecoin was a joke and became a real thing when enough people got behind it then there's other coins that are are just trying to seek attention like ass coin Right, uh, which is short for Australian Shepherd System or something like that. Uh, there's SEC Coin, which um, is an acronym for something that I will not say about fellatio on Elon Musk. Um, there's a, a Stop Elon wow. Coin. There's a you know, there's just all these different coins. And and what's what happens is you, if you go on Twitter, and I don't recommend anyone goes on Twitter, but if you do go on Twitter in general. Go and look up people saying, what's the next crypto? You know, and what happens a lot of time is someone will make, they'll buy some Ethereum or some Bitcoin or something like that. They'll make a thousand bucks. They think they're the smartest person in the world because they made a thousand dollars. And then they tweet, like, what's the next, next crypto? So what happens with these shit coins is you get a group of people together, 20 people usually it starts with, and they come up with this idea to, to go and do what's called a pump and dump. And the idea is you're going to pump up a coin, you're going to get a bunch of people to buy it. When at its peak, you're going to dump it and you're going to make money. So what happens is they go on Twitter, these 20 people, they start a telegram, telegram room or a WhatsApp room that's public. And they go and they look for people that are saying, what's the next crypto? Or I just bought Ethereum or I just bought some Dogecoin or whatever. And they reply and they say, Go check out Feg Token or Asscoin or whatever. It's going to be huge or Happy Coin or you know whatever mm-hmm. the coin is that they're trying to pump. People go 
and they look at it, they join the telegram room and they think like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in on the bottom. Like I'm going to make money on this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I, yeah, like, yeah. because if you had a dollar of Bitcoin in, in 2010 today, you, you'd be a multimillionaire from a dollar. It's like the, right. literally the biggest right. investment uh, uh, jump you could have made in history. So people get excited and they start buying in and they, and they start telling other people, other people start joining. Next thing you know, your telegram group has 10,000 people in it. The price of the coin, uh, everyone says, wait, don't buy, don't buy, wait, wait, wait. We're going we're gonna to buy tomorrow at, at 7 o'clock. It's going to be amazing. Everyone buys. At 8 o'clock, those 20 people sell and they get away with right. – and I talked to one of them that got made a half million dollars in one day on one coin. Um, I mean, they sound like day traders of yore. It's almost like yeah, – um, it's all shit. And, and it's like the Wolf of Wall Street kind of scenario. It's like a boiler room, right? And But now it's for like these – you know, currencies that, as you're describing them, almost are like a fusion of a meme and a coin, right? Like they have like some kind of, it's like a concept that they just try to draw everybody into. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's not a concept, it's a lie. Because the, int- <laughs> right. the intent is to, and I guess that's what day traders were like in the Wolf of Wall Street. You know, it's no, it's right. no different. But, but they, the lie is... Um, Let's let's get some people to buy in, and you know yeah, that they're doing it in good faith. That that there's some kind of idea we're actually creating a bank. We're not just trying to rip you off. Yeah, and 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 what they what they do that's really interesting is it's for me the most fascinating part about it. And I would love to figure out how to write a book about this, but it's just it's so impossible because it moves so quickly, and it's like it just wouldn't be relevant at the by the time it was published. But but what I think is really interesting is that. It's the ultimate internet memification where, like, the internet comes together, right? And they, the internet, sometimes the internet comes together to, to cancel someone. Sometimes they come together to help solve a problem. Sometimes they come together to create a really funny meme about, about uh, Bernie Sanders' mittens. Like, and, some, and, like, it's just this, these people that don't know each other that are, that, like, it's humanity at its best and its worst, right? And in this instance, it's humanity... Uh, where they, it's a, a small group of people that have un, that understand how to psychologically impact and hook people in a way that I've never seen before. So, for example, they know that if they name a coin a really dumb name, like boobs coin or something like that, or like mm-hmm. there's sex coins that for like the people have created and things like that, like ass coin. Ass coin stands out in the ten thousand coins that are out there. So people think that's funny. Oh, cool. Let me buy some ass. And then I could tweet. I just bought some ass, right? Oh, and, yeah. and then what they do is they, they, they tap into the psychology of like, this is the one. You can make it. And they do this by creating – so like as I said earlier, there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be out there in the marketplace. So what they do with these shit coins is they have created a trillion of them. So I bought – for an experiment, it was I should I should really expense this for Vanity Fair, but like I bought a uh, hundred dollars <laughs> of shit coins, and I bought essentially like ten dollars of each, and one of them that had like a, a I think it was like a quadzillion number of coins. I have a million of those coins, right, for ten dollars, which is now worth three because it got pumped pumped and dumped. But like, yes. but in my mind, psychologically, I'm like, wait, I have a million of this. If this coin becomes worth a dollar, I'm going to make a million dollars for my ten bucks. So it's it's yeah. again playing with your psychology, and they do this psychology, all the, yeah. all the way through, and then they, it's just every day. There's just dozens of these. So here's another question. Yeah, let's just say that I had 
a million dollars worth of Ascoin. Yeah. Now I want to cash out and I want to actually have dollars in my hand. How do you even do that? Well, first of all, if you had a million dollars worth of Ascoin, I would tell you to sell it instantly because it's not worth a million dollars. But second of all, <laughs> so there are different ways to cash out. And so Coinbase, uh, which is the biggest marketplace, does it for you. So they are not a bank. They're a, almost like an exchange. You know when you go on vacation to Spain and you need to get pesos or euros or whatever? Sure. Yeah. And they charge you a little fee for that? That's Coinbase. That's what they do. And they make a lot of money doing it. You know, I think the company's worth, mm-hmm. what, $100 billion or something like that now? Mm-hmm. So the, a Coinbase is a very reputable place to buy and sell crypto. But they only carry very reputable cryptos. They would not carry Ascoin. Right. Um, so there's they, like triple A coins. There's triple A, you yes. know, cryptocurrencies, and there's like B minus, you know. There's way there's Z minus ones, but like so. <laughs> so if you wanted to buy and sell Bitcoin, you could go on. You could go. You could. You there's a couple ways to do. It. One is to go on like a Coinbase, and you just hook up your bank account or your credit card or whatever, and you purchase the coins, and then Coinbase holds it for you in its wallet. And then when you're ready to sell, you sell it on Coinbase, and they take a little percentage, and everyone's happy. And then you transfer the U.S. dollars back to your bank account, and then you pay tax at the end of the day. And with a coin like Ascoin, right? They're not carrying that, They're, or Fed token, or whatever these some of these other ones are. Um, so they they those coins operate on these like sketchy systems where you literally have to go from like Coinbase to Gate.io to this to that to the other to all these different subsidiaries to buy and sell, and then change and change and change and change and change until you get it back to being a Bitcoin wow. or an Ethereum. Uh, so it's a lot of work, and but people have a lot of time on their hands. It's so esoteric, and yet I know that there's like millions of people are kind of living in this reality from day to day. I, I met an um, investigative reporter recently, mm. and, uh, but he's sort of phasing out of being an investigative reporter, and now he spends all day trading in cryptocurrency and um, nascent marijuana penny stocks, you know, <laughs> marijuana uh, business. And I was like, wow, you're really on the leading edge of speculative behavior uh, in, in the world. Um, but whenever I hear about it, like I'm hearing about it from you, I'm probably at the more sort of like a n- normal distance from, uh, from this world that I, it all seems very far away to me. Um, but you would, would you recommend that somebody get involved in, in cryptocurrencies? What, what do you think about them as a healthy thing to be doing? Well, I don't think both financially and personally, I think personally, I don't think there's a lot on the internet right now that's healthy to be doing. Um, You know, I I think we just spent a year and a half inside staring at our phones and our computers. And I think like the healthy thing to be doing would be to take it and put it away and not go on Instagram. I've deleted Instagram and Twitter from my phone. I am a, a much calmer human being as a result of it. I genuinely am. I do not. I, I used to check Twitter. Uh, I was probably on there for an hour to two hours a day. I mean, back in the day, I was on there seven, eight hours. It was literally just on constantly. Sure. I, you know, now if I, if I'm on Twitter, like m- more than five minutes in a week, I would be shocked. I just do not yeah. check it. And what was, what's been fascinating, sorry, this is a little aside. It's been really no, fascinating please. to me is I've been obsessed with this, um, 
tragic building collapse in Miami. Uh, just yes. obsessed with it. Um, I, I just, you know, want to know how it happened and why and if there are people that are still alive and how the rescuers are, you know, all, I just literally cannot stop reading about it. And I, in normal circumstances, a couple of years ago, I would have been on Twitter scrolling and scrolling, looking for something. Mm-hmm. But I realized that there's nothing I'm going to find out on there that is either going to be accurate or or that's going to, you know, enlighten me any more than reading journalists in the Miami Herald and the New York Times and even the Daily Mail, like, you know, like that are talking to experts that are analyzing the video footage that are expla- that are explaining how the rescue operations have done this, that, and the other. And they're not experts on Twitter. They're just a bunch. And so I went on this morning for some reason because I, I was just wanted to see like, I, I just was, I, I don't know, I just was like a rote thing I did on my computer when I checked my email. I was like, oh, let me go see what's on Twitter. And immediately, like, Jason Calcanis was, had blocked some other investor and whatever. And I was like, close, like, glad yeah. I didn't waste any time on that. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that, um, I think that, like, the pandemic is really, for me at least, and for quite a few people I know, it's given them the opportunity to say, like, I, I don't really need to waste my time on this thing right now. Like, I can look at it yeah. for a minute and that's it. And I think that's the same with crypto. Like, I think, like, you know, the friend, that the, the person I know who made half a million dollars in a single day on shitcoins told me that they were on their computer for, like, 18 hours. They didn't see their kids that day, you know. Yeah, yeah, made yeah. a half million dollars and it's great and, mm-hmm. you know, and good for them. But, like... But I, I think the best advice for investing in crypto is to bring this back to the original question rather than my Twitter tirade uh, was. Which I enjoyed. Which you enjoyed. Thank you. Um, the best advice I have is like, if let's just say you have $1,000, right, in the bank and you don't need that $1,000 and it's going to be your savings. You know, I would say this is what someone told to me. Take, take 70% of it. And say, I'm going to invest this in the stock market uh, and I'm not going to look at it for 10 years. And in 10 years, that $1,000 will be worth $10,000, right? Go go safe, go in like blue chips, this, that, and the other. And then with the other 300 bucks, like go have fun with it. Like if you want to take mm-hmm. 100 of it and buy some penny marijuana stocks, do that. If you, <laughs> if you want to take 100 of it and buy some Bitcoin, if you want to take 100 of it and buy some shitcoin, like whatever – you just have to like know how comfortable you are with it. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that a, an investor friend told me that I said, what is, um, is it younger people or older people who are the best investors? And he said, it's the people who don't look that are the best investors. And it's like, if you put your money in and you walk away, because if you're checking every five seconds and you see it going yeah, down, yeah. you're going to panic. Um, sure. But I do have another point to make about this, which I've, I've come to this realization about crypto because I've been paying so much attention to it. And it, it it's a relation, relates to that. So I think in the early days, you know, it was just everyone was investing, whatever. But I do think you said like you said that you don't invest in any of this stuff. Right. And I think it is no. predominantly younger, more tech savvy people who are investing. And they are also more impatient and they are uh, driven by fear and speculation and excitement and this, that, and the other. So I think the part of the reason, my personal belief is the part of the reason that crypto is so volatile is because the people investing in it are not seasoned investors. 
most they themselves are volatile. <laughs> yeah, and they are themselves volatile. And so, like, the reason that that you know AT and T stock doesn't fall by half and and rise by two x every single day is because most of the people who invested in AT and T are like old folks who are like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I put my money in and I I'll look when I retire or whatever. And I think that um, you if so if you do want to invest in any crypto. Uh, I would say go with the more common ones. Um, mm-hmm. Don't go ridiculous with your research. Like do some research, but you know you're going to get scammed in the research too because everyone's going to be writing fake, fake articles and so on. But whatever you do, just do it and and like log out. Well, it's what you know. Years ago, in a in another life, I worked for SmartMoney.com. Okay, and it was during the internet boom, mm-hmm. and we were right, the ones writing the fake stories to pump up stocks, not even really knowing because we didn't know what we were talking about. Yeah, but um, but this is like what they used to say about emerging markets, right? Basically, like you take some little percentage of your portfolio and we'll put it in, you know, a guy that invests in you know countries that might be overturned in a revolution next week, but also, might double your investment, right? <laughs> um, so, um, but I just want to go back to something you said because I think that it gets to the heart of something, which is that cryptocurrency is really very much connected with internet culture broadly. Yes. And I think this pandemic has taught us about how the limits of being online to your own personal mental health, to your social health, to, I thought about this when you came on here um, a few episodes ago to talk about um, Fake Famous, your your documentary uh, about influencers. Um, you know, you have young children. I have children who are 11 and 14. And um, the damage mm-hmm. that the screens have done is profound. And in one point, I think this summer or sometime soon, we should have somebody on here who studies this because I know there are people out there studying this. But... These things, you know, the I, I heard the other day, and I, we'll fact check this later, but that, you know, even children's um, eyesight, they're starting to see problems with children's eyesight because they're constantly looking a foot away from them at one thing. That, you know, that there's all these effects, psychological and, and, and otherwise. And uh, I do, you know, there's always going to be people who are going to be completely absorbed in the internet and they're going to be involved in this, but I do feel like I wonder, and and by the way, you can't separate this out from Donald Trump being president because he was a focal point that kept people glued to screens too and glued to cable. That's why we're seeing probably dips in all the media right now. There's no longer that, but obviously that was not healthy, right? (laughs) That level of absorption. But so I've had this realization just in the past couple of weeks, you know, I've been writing about tech for, I mean, I don't know, in one form or another for 20 years or so now and to age myself. And um, and I've always been fascinated by the idea of if technology will eventually allow us to, if it will separate us from our humanity, right, from each other. Um, and I always think about uh, this front page article in the New York Times in 1876 when the telephone came out. And the front page article says like, you know, the telephone will empty concert halls and churches and no one will ever leave their house again. And we've said this about every technology that's come out. And I think that the reality is 
what we learned or what I learned from the pandemic is that the second we look, we spent a year plus on our phones and our computers and with technology and nothing else without other human beings around us. And now everyone wants to go back to the office. Everyone wants to go outside. They want to be around mm-hmm. other people and they don't want to look at their phones. Sure, we're still looking at them, but not – most people I know are not – You know, their screen time is down oh, 30, yeah. 40, 50%. Yeah. And totally. I think the reality is is that what we've learned from this or what I've learned from this is that, that it serves a purpose technology, but it is, it is never going to replace. And in fact, so much of it has – reminded me how much I don't want it to replace the human interactions I have. And I think that, and how much I appreciate them, even just like talking to your neighbor, you know? Um, uh, And I think that, I, I think that the saddest part about it all is that the technology companies are obsessed with their numbers and, and more user stats and this, that, and the other, and they are tweaking and fucking with the algorithm to fuck with you. And I'm telling you, the only way to win, the only way to win is to not play the game. And that's to turn it off. That is literally why I don't have Facebook on my phone. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. I just, I don't want to check them anymore. Like it is just, Mm -hmm. I don't, there's no upside to it. There's not, look, sure. I'm sure people meet people and have great relationships and it's great for us canceling this person or, or bringing that person up or whatever. But I think that like the, at the end of the day, it has become worse than it has become better. And I think that there needs to be a massive reset and that needs to happen from the user standpoint and more importantly, from the business standpoint. I'm so glad you're saying these things. And I feel like, you know, you may be out ahead of most people realizing that, but I think that realization is certainly coming to a lot of people after all of this. And one thing, you know, you may not, it may not have to be a conscious thing. I'm just thinking about in the last month, since people started coming out of their homes and socializing again, it's been like a, I have to turn away all the invitations for coming over to people's house. You want to do this? Do you want to do that? And you go out and you find yourself for hours talking and socializing and hanging out and you haven't looked at your phone. They haven't (laughs) looked at your phone. That's that for me, that has been the most fascinating thing. Like we had a dinner party this weekend for like 10 friends. And at the end of the night, I was like, wow, no one checked their phone once, literally not once. No one Instagrammed the dinner. No one tweeted about anything. No one pulled something out, pulled the phone out to check it. It was literally 10 people sitting around a table eating and talking. And uh, and I think like, you know, I mean, look, Clubhouse. Everyone was like, Clubhouse is going to be the next huge big thing. No, it was a replacement for our human interactions. And once the pandemic was done... At least, yeah. you know, to the degree it is done, like that was it done. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. go, it, I don't want to spend my Friday night sitting at home, listening to a bunch of people talk on their phones. Ugh, I'd rather read yeah, a book terrible. or go hang out with some friends or I don't know. Yeah. Or hang out in podcasts. Well, podcasts uh, you can with, do while you're doing other things. So we can make an excuse. And I this. like that. Well, see, that's the beauty of it. And, uh, you know, you can be lying in your hammock listening to us and uh, you're not going to feel too interneted. <laughs> um, Nick, I want to thank you for coming on. It's so excellent having the OG back in town. It's my pleasure to, to come remind on. us, you know, you're reminding me uh, of why you're the OG to begin with. You're so um, 
interesting to talk to, and it was wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And for all those listeners that want to yell at me on Twitter, have fun yelling into the void, my friends. I might peek in there and just find out what they're saying, but I won't tell you. Uh, You can tell me. I don't care. I truly don't care anymore. (laughs) Well, uh, stay tuned to find out uh, about the exciting developments in Emily Jane Fox world. We'll keep you duly informed. And uh, we wish her the best in this beautiful moment, this life passage that she's going through. Her new baby, Nicola. Uh, (laughs) Well, you you guys will have to discuss that privately. Yes. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank Nick Bilton for coming back to Inside the Hive. Always a delight to have him here. Thanks to Brett Fuchs, our producer, to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this program possible, and to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this program. If you liked what you heard, hit subscribe. See you here next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.